Um, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of John and stand with me as we read this very familiar story that's a very powerful story. And I pray that we can look at it with fresh eyes this morning and we allow these stories to kind of re-Jesus or reorient our faith around the ways of Jesus if we've drifted from them. John 1, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, and after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. May God bless our meditations on the scripture this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present among us, and we recognize that you are the teacher. You are the teacher that exists in my heart, but you're you're the teacher that exists in the heart of everyone gathered together in this room, and we pray most of all that our ears would be attuned and our discernment would be uh, uh, bending toward the leading and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because when, when you speak a word into our souls, it does more good than a thousand words of men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So this is a fantastic story. Uh, I had such a great time revisiting it this week. And, and particularly, I try to be mindful when I'm v- revisiting stories that I feel like I've heard all my life. And really, uh, uh, the Spirit was faithful. This was so valuable to my soul. And, and so, so as we dive into it, I, I just want to remind everyone, you, you know, we're, we're living in a season where there are lots of discussions going on on the internet, and, and we know that evangelicalism itself uh, is, is experiencing some shaking uh, that I, I personally think is of the Lord. Other people might think it's of the devil or whatever, but um, I'm happy for it. And you may have heard the term ex-evangelicals to talk about the phenomenon of the number of our young people that are asking questions and they're, and they're looking at the faith that was handed down to them and they're looking at the ways of Jesus and they're seeing this ever-widening gap and so they are leaving our movement, they're leaving the church. And, you know, for a guy like me, you can, you, can get, you can get on the email list and grab the books that are trying to address the crisis of the situation of the ex-evangelicals 
whatever. I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for those. And I'm really grateful when anyone chooses to start thinking about their faith even if it come, they come up with some conclusions that may be different from mine or they depart from some conclusions from their past, I don't think it's honoring of God for us to neglect the mind that he's given us to engage the mind in the larger questions of our faith. But all I would say to that is if you find yourself in the place where you're so frustrated or you're so hurt or maybe even so understandably angry that, that you've got maybe one and one and a half feet out the door of the church, I empathize with you and I'm only sharing anecdotally from my own experience. I'm not speaking as an expert. But one of the things that I have noticed as a pattern in my life is when I get overwhelmed into those places of, of bitterness and despair and doubt, sometimes that happens because of circumstances beyond my control, suffering and so forth. I'm not addressing that at all this morning. So everything that I say doesn't apply to the conflict that arises when we encounter suffering. What I am talking about is a conflict that arises whenever our minds start churning and we start we, we, we start rethinking and reframing our, our approach to faith. What I would say is this, what is a consistent pattern in my life is when I drift over into my faith primarily being about the practices of the Christian religion or the dogma, doctrine, teaching of the Christian religion, uh, I am more prone to be lulled to sleep or to become bored or be, to become bitter. And the reason being is this, it's that I've, and now I've learned the pattern and I, almost every time I know for me, the first step is to consider whether or not I've wandered away from Jesus in order to honor the religion that has been organized in his name. And I think it's a very, very important question for all of us to be open to from time to time because I inevitably find out that through the power of the flesh, I've been, I've been pursuing the external obligations of Christianity, but I've ceased living from the power center of the living Christ who is within me as the hope of glory. And so almost every time for me, it requires some journey back to what I call rejesusing my faith. And really, Mostly all we ever need to return to seasons of renewal and revival is to set aside some time for some heart examination and ask ourselves, Holy Spirit, or ask the Spirit within, within the context of our own heart, do I need to read Jesus my faith? Because I don't, I know there's limited power in the sentimentalities of organized religion but there's transformative power in the mercy and grace of God encountered in the face of Christ, the living Christ who is in you as the hope of glory. And so we're gonna look at this story and we're gonna look at the way these tensions are actually set up because these tensions already exist in this little story. So the way many scholars have divided a study of the book of John is in chapters, it's chapters one through 12 and chapters 13 through 21. Those scholars who take that approach, which again, okay, like I'm gonna admit, those who are not nerds can take a mental break for about 60 seconds, but you have to come back to us in just a minute. And if I see you wondering, I'm gonna sing the biscuit song to bring you back. Um, 
But, but, but for others of you, that you might find this interesting. Uh, when we define the book that way, what we have is two books, and one we might call the book of signs, chapters 1 through 12, and the other we might call the book of glory, chapters 13 through 21. And I think that this is actually a helpful way, because if you read the Gospel of John, one of the things you'll realize very quickly is that it reads differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we would call the synoptic Gospels. They have a lot more similarities, both in wording and in chronology, than the book of John is going to have, and that's because John's not worried about chronological history here. John has an agenda He has a purpose for writing this book, and his purpose is to highlight, particularly uh, in the first century to um, Greeks, but primarily uh, to his Jewish audience, highlighting the significance of Jesus' identity, who he is, and what he has come to do, and the change that's taking place in the world because of the coming of Jesus. And so he uses, so you'll notice some of his stories don't match the same chronology as you might find them in the Synoptic Gospels. Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's because he wants these stories to be utilized in an orderly way so that he can highlight for his audience the way in which these engagements serve a higher purpose than just historical report. These engagements are intended to reveal something about what God is doing on the earth and the sending of his son, what it means that the world is in a, in a time of transformation now that the world, that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have be- beheld his glory. So, so this idea of glory is going to be an, an incredible, uh, it's going to be, a, a, it's going to be a, uh, a theme in John that we're going to want to pause and take a look at whenever it comes back up, as it will come up again and again. So in this first book, the book of signs, what John is doing is he's telling these stories, particularly in the way these signs reveal the nature and character of Jesus and thus serve as a corrective for their view of the nature and character of God himself. Because as, as we've learned, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Um, uh, God has always been like Jesus. We haven't known that God, we haven't always known that God was like Jesus, but now we do and we ought to respond accordingly in the way we think of and imagine the heart and character of God. So, As one commentator said it this way, and the quote is in your notes, it's not going to be on the overhead. John 2 opens one such section for us. Within the book of signs, John concentrates on both the festivals and institutions. Everyone say festivals and institutions. Thank you, class. Festivals and institutions of Judaism. Using them as interpretive vehicles that will give clearer insight into Jesus' personhood. Now, listen to this sentence very closely because we're going to begin to see this fleshed out in this story. Um, Throughout the section, we watch Jesus appearing at important events in Judaism, exploiting the symbols that are associated with these events in order to make his own identity clear, providing something in abundance that the event promises and generally being misunderstood along the way. So when we look at this story, we walk through this story, you know, there are some things we could talk about we don't have time to talk about, but of course you have uh, uh, the YouTube and the Google, so if you wanna explore some of these further, 
you can do so because uh, there's, there's this exchange that happens between Mary and Jesus. Were in verse four, where Jesus sounds kind of rude, where he says, woman, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? Well, that word woman, it's not as tender as mother, but it's not a term of disrespect. And in fact, Jesus will use that same term again at a very tender moment when he's actually on the cross and he's asking John to take care of Mary. And he says, um, woman, behold your son. It's the same term that's used. So it's not a term, it's not a term of, of, of curtness or disrespect, but it is indicating that there is something larger in Mary's relationship to Jesus. On one level, she is his mother. She's the one that raised him and nurtured him and brought him into the world. On the other hand, Mary serves as an example of the ultimate disciple both in the way she receives the word from the angel and her willingness to embrace her role in this redemptive story, even though it will be costly to her, and also in the way she interacts with Jesus and is part of the narrative of Jesus' life throughout the gospel. She serves as a model of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I can't be inconvenienced. What does he say? His what hasn't come? His hour. So his hour, this hour will be another frequent, uh, frequent topic of conversation throughout the book of John because in the book of glory, which is the last half, those are all uh, an extended meditation of Jesus on his way to the cross in which the hour of his death will be revealed. So what is happening here is that once these signs begin, it will begin to open up the pathway for Jesus to walk that will eventually lead to his death. So he's making a reference to the hour of his, of his conflict and ultimate death on the cross. And he's saying it's not time yet. So, so what we are alerted to immediately is when Jesus does this public sign, then the timer is set and the countdown clock is set and it's counting down the moments and that culminate with his death on the cross. And so, 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 so there's that exchange there, but then, then he says to do whatever he tells you. But then I want you to take a look here, verse six, that this is the, really the most powerful point of the entire story. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them up. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. What is happening here, and Jesus, uh, and, and it will be expounded upon in the Gospels, when, the, when, when um, Jesus speaks of that illustration, you can't put new wine into old wineskins or they're burst. You've got a new, new wineskins for the new wine. Just so in here, he is taking a symbol of religious purity that would have been of high importance among the practice of the Jewish faith. He's taking, he's taking these vats of water and, and they would have been stone jars, not clay because they would have been concerned about the clay creating an impurification in the water. So the stone jars specifically were set aside for purification, for, for uh, purification washing. He is taking these symbols of, pers- of purification and he's saying, I am going to replace those with my new wine. And when you sip it, you will see there's not been a finer wine served. That's a powerful image that John is inviting us to hold before us in a way that's not quite accessible to us 2,000 years removed from being practicing Jews. 
but they certainly would have seen the powerful power of what's taking place as through this sign, Jesus is speaking of this culmination and fulfillment of the old covenant and the bringing in and the instituting of a new covenant, which the New Testament unashamedly celebrates as being a better covenant. Just like Jesus's wine is the better wine. So as we look at this story and as we contemplate its imagery, I want to simply end today by talking about two basic revelations because something is going to happen here that's going to change the meaning of our relationship with God. And I say our because we're going to learn that what's going on in these gospels has universal implications. This is just already talking. Um, But one of the things that I would ask you to consider is uh, in your reading of the biographies of Jesus, consider the possibility that one of the things that's being communicated through the biography of Jesus is the end of religion. Once you open yourself up to that possibility, and then you begin to read some of these stories, you can see where Jesus is continually through his words and actions revealing this basic principle that religion as they understood it is coming to an end. And in specifically, what I would say is this, it is the end of all mediated religion. Now, Plenty of religions have sought to resurrect this mediation, including certain movements in Christianity. But I think that the overall message of the gospel in the New Testament is that Jesus is the end of the religion for those who trust in him. We now don't live under the need for our relationship with God to be mediated through practices, through liturgy, through dogma, and through teachers, and through authority figures. We are now all priests. There's an immediacy of our faith because now if we want to go through the place where God dwells into the holiest of holies, all we need to do is look right here. Where Christ is living in you as the hope of glory. And any religious practice that helps you connect with that revelation and equips you with ways of living that allow you to live from that center, I applaud those. But all uh, discipleships and spiritualities that take your attention away from here, cast it up here, and even suggest that there are practices and people that you need to follow in order to attain that mediation to be in the presence of God, I am not for those at all. I think they bring death. As Paul said, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And this idea is intention right here in this first sign in the book of John. My suggestion this morning is this. When we move from living a fear-based life of religious obligation and begin living a wonder-based life of a Jesus-centered spirituality, we receive two powerful revelations. Number one is this, honoring the dignity of humans made in God's image supersedes obligation to the demands of religious purity. 
Honoring the dignity of humans made in God's image supersedes obligation to the demands of religious purity. Now, his audience didn't believe that. And in fact, it's one of the things he's most frequently criticized about because he would rather be present with those labeled unclean and show them honor and dignity rather than following the obligations that would have kept him ceremonially, ritually, and religiously pure. Second revelation we receive. Obeying Jesus is the means of being transformed by the grace of Jesus. Obeying Jesus is the means of being transformed by the grace of Jesus. The old hymns say it best, don't they? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So let's look at these. It's not enough that already has some thoughts on Sunday morning. That's never the position I want to be in. I never feel responsible to require anyone to believe anything. What I hope I get better at for the rest of my days on, on earth is authentically bearing witness to the power of Christ in me, the hope of glory, in hopes that it would inspire you to bear witness to the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if these ideas are here truly, it's important for us to ask ourselves, is, does this bear the weight of the fuller testimony of scripture? And I think these two revelations certainly can cross that bridge without any fear of it snapping underneath them. So, first of all, the first revelation we received when we moved from fear-based religious obligation to, wonder, to a wonder-based life of a Jesus-centered spirituality in the way of Christ. Honoring the dignity of human beings made in God's image supersedes obligation to the demands of religious purity. And I never thought about this motive before. Although once I read it, I, I don't always read commentators, but sometimes I like for them to be part of the conversation. And this week I was really glad that I did because this idea just kind of slapped me upside of the head and I just sat stunned for a while. I just sat with it really for half a day. Uh, and I like the quote from um, Greg Keener. Jesus who acts with divine authority does not hesitate to suspend ritual law, again, symbolized by water, in favor of a friend's honor. Now, we can't fully appreciate this. Back in the first century, these weddings were a very big deal. They didn't just involve a small guest list of friends and family. They would include the, the, the entire village. And if the person was wealthy enough, it might extend to uh, villages even beyond that particular village to the surrounding villages. And they were major celebrations. Sometimes they would last for seven days that people would actually take seven days off of work to stay present for these celebrations. And... The wine was a significant symbol of the groom's competency. So if the groom ran out of wine, it would not only have been considered a, socially, a social faux pas, it wouldn't have just been considered socially rude, it also would have then stirred imaginations and judgments about what that means for the competency of the groom himself. 
And even so far that I read that some couples would have interpreted it as a sign of doom and bad luck if they ran out of wine at the wedding. Worse than rain on your wedding day. And so this was a significant social anxiety for the groom. And here that he's about to be in this place of shame and embarrassment, Jesus rescues this man from shame and embarrassment by misusing the ceremonial pots that were set aside for ritual cleansing. Because for Jesus, the dignity of the human matters more than the obligations of religion. So let's look at this idea in scripture. So let's, let's kind of flesh this out a little bit. The first place I was brought to that I thought about in this regard is Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4 where Paul, right before he actually pens that Christological hymn that's found in Philippians 2, he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should, should, not, uh, should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to say, give me something else on the list. Give me making sure I'm there every Sunday morning. I like that one. Give me what God wants is for me to read my Bible every day. I got that one. I even have it conveniently divided so I can get through the whole Bible in a year or if I go half the speed, two years. Still more than when other people have read the Bible. I like that one. Give me that one. Scripture memory. Oh, give me that one. I used to love to find out who knew less Scripture than me so that I could challenge them to a sword duel or something we used to call it. I don't know. Bless evangelical's heart. Um, evangelical Artie. Um, or... You know, maybe even something more visual where I can go out and serve someone less fortunate than myself, particularly in a way that I don't have to have any relational connection. I don't really have to worry about them when the event's over. And if I'm lucky, I'll even get a great photo op for my Instagram or Facebook. That stuff I love. I'll take that every day above, you know, that stuff is secondary, I'm not worried about that. What I'd rather you concentrate on is looking out for the interests of others more than looking out for your own interest. What I'd rather you do to manifest your faith in Christ is to consider others as more important than yourself. Now this, my friends, demands something of, of me that those other disciplines do not. It makes those other disciplines much easier. But you know what? They don't have the same power to transform the world as this one does. That if we would live as an expression of our worship, like if you were given the choice, you can either sing more songs for the rest of your life or you can't sing any songs and you've got to consider everyone else more important than you. Give me the songs, man. That's the kind of worship I want to offer to God. But this is not what God requires. This is not what God calls me to. 
But God calls me, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I do enjoy those things. I'm not belittling those. But what I'm saying is they should be a culmination of my spiritual practice, not a replacement for my spiritual practice. And for so many times, the church activity in my mind becomes a substitution for spiritual practice that can actually transform me. Like learning how to navigate the world and cultivating in real time an attitude and a peace of mind that allows me to see others as more important than myself. And, and when we think about those kinds of callings, either how we treat people or what we do as expressions of worship, I think it is important. We can even go back to the Old Testament and we'll look at 1 Samuel. When, when, when Saul sought to offer offerings, 1 Samuel 15, 22, this is what Samuel the prophet says to Saul. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Do you see? So to obey the call to treat others as more important than myself is of a higher priority to the heart of God than the religious ritual practices of worship. Now, I'm, I'm speaking of them as, they, as, as though they're an antagonism. I don't think they have to be an antagonism to one another. You can do both. But what I'm warning against is the tendency for us to gather in houses like this on Sunday morning and then by the time we are at lunch, we are degrading the dignity of those we couldn't believe had the audacity to come to church that morning. Dressed like that, presenting like that, when we know their lifestyle. It is way more important that we learn to orient ourselves around affirming the dignity of those we're tempted to judge than it is that we're here and that we get goosebumps during our sermons and our songs. Those aren't the priority. Those are the celebration of the priority. So let's look at this again where this, this is, <laughs> this, uh, we see this in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now this is really important because this is actually a prophetic warning to Judah. In the prophetic warning to Judah, Isaiah is going to refer to her as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know me, I have retired from my former vocation of butchering religious cows for gourmet burgers. I don't want to wander into those things anymore. I just want peace and for everyone to like me and I will like everyone in return. But only under those circumstances. I'm just kidding. Um, but there's an oft-quoted assumption that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their sexual ethics. What is interesting about that is most of the time when we turn to that, we don't see ourselves as those committing those sexual ethics. However, if you read the scripture, we find that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for things that we routinely practice in. We, we, we routinely practice ourselves. So set aside that, and, and this is one of the places where you'll see it, because you need to see what Judah's actually 
being judged for so that we understand why the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah as we read it. So this is to Judah, and here's what Isaiah says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Now this is talking about the religious worship. Now keep in mind, my friends, what the prophet via the voice of Yahweh is criticizing is the prescriptive worship that is found in the book of the law, which also would have been understood as being delivered as the word of God. This is one of the things I love about our faith tradition is it critiques itself. There aren't very many faith traditions that, is, that are willing to progressively critique themselves. This tradition does. So Isaiah's not talking about just a wild hair system of worship. This is the prescribed system of worship. And here's what Isaiah says, Yahweh says to them, what are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and of the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? That's trampling of my courts. Well, they could have said, well, we thought that's what you liked. We thought that's what you required. We thought that's what you wanted. And then he says, who requires this of you? Verse 13, stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. Look at these strong words. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. What's the solution? Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Now, now this is very important because if we're gonna understand evil and good here, we need to pay attention to what the scripture says. And I'm gonna pause here because I'm gonna say what the temptation is, is to define evil and good as expressions of personal morality. But what's uncomfortable when we go back to the prophets is evil and good are expressions of public mercy or public oppression. That's the categories. In other words, it's not about whether or not you're thinking the wrong thoughts in your house or you're watching too many rated R Netflix shows or whatever. It is about examining the authenticity of your faith based on your, past, your posture toward the oppressor and the oppressed. So here's what he says. Learn to do what is good. 
pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So do you see what Isaiah is saying? This temptation to substitute religious practice for the practice of mercy and dignity toward other human beings is something that all religious people face the temptation to do because it goes all the way back to even ancient Israel with the prophet saying to them, I don't care about the sacrifices you're offering in that temple. You actually disrespect the temple because you offer those sacrifices and yet you still oppress people. And you still, let, you still let the powerful get away with oppressing other people. These are the things that you're supposed to correct. The reason why you were gonna be a light to the nations isn't because of your worship. Because guess what, baby? They all worship that way. The way that you were gonna be a light to the nations is that you would treat people differently than all the nations of the earth. Not simply you would worship differently, but that you would not put up with oppression. You would stand up for the rights of the defenseless. You would even relieve debts every 50 years. So there would not be a financial bondage among people of your nation. That is how you were intended to be a light to the nation. There's another correction later on in Isaiah 58. Cry out, which by the way, I understand Bear with me, hopefully we will land the plane on a little higher ground. Um, Because I understand these aren't scriptures we're gonna put on coffee mugs or t-shirts anytime soon. However, sometimes those aren't the ones we need to hear the most. Cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Tell my people their transgression. In the house of Jacob, their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Then they ask, why have we fasted, but you have not seen? Here we go. Now we're gonna move into those religious practices that we believe if we follow them, they somehow garner favor with the Almighty. While we fasted, but you have not seen. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast. This is the response. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast. Look at this. And oppress all your workers. If you are being unfair to your laborers and then setting aside of worship fast to me, I am not pleased. That's not the point. Verse four, you fast with contention and strife. You strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voices heard on high. So what he's doing is he's responding to the question, why is the fasting not working? And he says, because of the way you treat other people and the way you celebrate violence among your society. It doesn't matter that you have a fast day if these are the values that you're committed to living. Verse five, will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose? 
to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? You see what he's saying? It is not about the ritual fast. It is about how you are treating the defenseless and the vulnerable among you. This shows your heart of faith. This shows your devotion to me. Your devotion to me is less seen in what you do in your religious gatherings. And it's more seen in your public mercy to those outside of the walls of your gatherings. This is what Isaiah is emphasizing to the people of Israel, and this is why they never quite made it to be the light of the nations until their Messiah came to fulfill this covenant on their behalf. But look what will happen if you will shift from the religious practice emphasis to the emphasis of your public mercy and caring for those who are on the margins. Look what he says in verse 8. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am, if you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and the malicious speaking. And if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like the noonday. The Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. For those of you who are anxious, I'm stopping now. Even though I'm really excited about the second part of the message, you have your notes. Maybe we'll do a part two next week. I don't know. We'll see how the spirit leads, but let's pause there. Let's let this hang in our hearts for just a minute. My friends, we may have a bold mission statement here. We say we want to be so rooted in God's love that we are changing the experience and expression of Christianity in our generation. We've made it our mission to simply be true to Christ, be kind to all people, and be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. Part of the influence of that mission statement we just read this morning, out of these passages in Isaiah, I used to believe, I was raised to believe that revival of the Christian faith would happen if we would more frequently gather in buildings and sing longer and pray harder. I was part of a movement that that's what it was all about. I have spit and sputtered and slobbered on the altar. I have spun myself silly to the point of vomiting in my worship. I've done all of these things. Remind me of the prophets of Baal, you know, on Mount Carmel. Just whatever I can do to get the fire to come down. But I miss the fact the fire is already here. 
We don't need God to rend the heavens. He's already rent the heavens. We don't need to pray, God, draw near. He has already drawn as near as he literally cosmologically can. That is not what's needed. It's an awareness of his presence right here, dwelling in me and with me. And it's a willingness to step out and redefine religious devotion, not by what takes place in our gatherings, but in the way we interact with one another. The presence of God is felt in this gap, in this distance between me and the other. And in between there is the presence of God. As Isaiah said, that's when your light breaks forth. That's when the sun comes up. So would you all stand with me as we get ready to take communion together? And what I would ask you is simply this. Is it possible that there needs to be a redefining of devotion in your own heart and life? Maybe it's less about religious practices and structures, and it's more about whether or not you can walk the earth as the pardon of God. And the reason why you can, we're gonna, we remind ourselves every single week, because God has dealt decisively with the sin of man. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So allow some space as you're walking through the line, gathering the elements, and as you're waiting for us to take communion together, allow a little space in your heart for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Is he calling you into a season where you are pursuing more proactively public mercy and relational grace as a means of expressing your love for him?